Well, good morning. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we will be considering verse 1 up to verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 up to verse 16. And let me start here. Um, One of the things that you will learn about me is that I enjoy musicals. Please don't judge. (laughs) My favorite musical is Les Miserables. And in that musical, the main character, Jean Valjean, faces a dilemma. To tell the truth and save an innocent man from prison or to save himself allowing this innocent man to be condemned in his place. His struggle culminates with these memorable lines. My soul belongs to God, I know, and I promise not to sing this. I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. Who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. God's grace that had rescued him led him to confess the truth and save that innocent man. And that's pretty much the appeal that Paul is making in verse 1 when he says, As a prisoner, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is, as it were, the response to the song that we just sang. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you in view of the incomprehensible, immeasurable love of Jesus Christ lavished upon us. The response of our souls is to say, I want to live for you. Paul then translates that into this thesis statement for Ephesians chapter 4 to chapter 6. It is the appropriate response to God's grace that has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you will see in chapter 4 up to chapter 6, the word walk repeated over and over. It describes our covenant relationship with God. It is a relationship that shapes our daily life. So chapter 4, 1 to 16, just a quick overview, tells that we are to walk worthy of our calling by preserving the unity of the Spirit. In verse 17 to verse 32, we are to stop walking in the futility of our former way of life, to walk as new creations. So there's the language of put off and put on. That's next week. Chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 6, we are to walk in love as God's beloved children. Chapter 5, verse 7 to 14, we are to walk as children of light. And then from verse 15 of chapter 5 all the way to the end, Paul tells us to walk wisely. Now, it is very important 
that we not disconnect chapter 1 to chapter 3 to chapter 4 from chapter 4 to chapter 6. Because the imperatives in chapter 4 to chapter 6 are grounded in the indicative. That is to say, God's, Paul's commands are the proper response to God's grace that he has lavished on us. God has saved us from our hopeless bondage to sin, Satan, and the world and brought us into covenant relationship with him so that we would be a showcase of his multifaceted wisdom. That's chapter 3, verse 10. So that, as Thomas Schreiner would say, the church is the locus of God's glory, the theater in which he displays his grace and love, declaring to the whole universe that the outworking of history is not arbitrary, but fulfills God's plan. And these succeeding verses show how we demonstrate the triumph of God in Christ in the daily life of the church. So let's read chapter 4, verse 1, up to verse 16. And um, I will be reading from the NIV 2011, even if it kind of obscures the walk metaphor. It's just that the translation is a lot better in other areas. Hear the word of the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So from, from verse 1, we see that Paul is addressing us as a prisoner for the Lord, 
calling us to complete humility, gentleness, patience, and love that enables us to put up with one another's flaws. Somewhat paradoxical, isn't it? He's calling us to complete humility, recognizing that we are imperfect people who will annoy and frustrate each other. But let's understand, these are heart dispositions that are patterned after our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are the fruit of knowing Christ's incomprehensible, transforming love. Because of that love, we become, let's go to Philippians chapter 2, and reflect again on the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll be reading it from the 2011 version of the NIV. Verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, who, Philippians 2, 6, who being in very nature God, did not equality, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. See, that's the reality of Christ's love. All that he is became the means for his self-giving. Did not exempt him from serving, but in his mind uniquely qualified him for serving. He used his advantages and put them at our disposal instead of using it for his own purposes, for his own self, instead of being selfish about them. Len Kohik notes about Paul's call to humility. Few people in Paul's world are as vulnerable as a prisoner. And we might be tempted to read Paul's advice about being humble and gentle as a practical strategy to avoid offending guards who could abuse him. Paul, however, sees these virtues as conforming to Christ's own character and thus summing up the perfection and full flourishing of a human made in the image of the Creator God. To look like Christ is to radiate patience, gentleness, and humility. And I have to admit, it is very difficult, isn't it? But Paul exhorting us to be what we are becoming, to be like Jesus, who, is, who was the most fully human being ever to live on this earth. To follow this example, to become completely humble, gentle, patient, and tolerant in love is to become more and more fully human. Humility means that we renounce our self-centeredness and like Jesus, put others' interests before our own. And we can do this in light of who Jesus is and what he has done because we recognize that we are needy creatures whose needs have been wonderfully met by the marvelous riches of Christ's grace and not by our selfish effort. That's why I made the emphasis on Jesus seeking, using his advantages, not insisting on them, but rather using them to serve others. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And because Jesus has done that for us, 
We are safe. We are secure by what he has done, by his continued care for you and me. That frees us to put the interests of others above ours. And then we do that with gentleness. Gentleness meaning we renounce harshness and violence because God's kindness towards us teaches us to value the other person. Recognizing that the person in front of us who is, who's, who's personality and character is tempting me to be violent and harsh is a creature made in the image of God. Patience means we renounce the tyranny of our personal agendas, trusting that the sovereign Lord is fulfilling his purposes in every situation and in every interaction. Bearing with one another in love means we make the effort to be kind to brethren whom we find unlovely or annoying. Precisely because this brother whom I find frustrating to deal with is loved by Jesus Christ. And so, as one who is also beloved by Jesus, We renounce our rights in order to seek the welfare of the other person, forgiving them for the wrong that they do because Christ has forgiven us and continues to forgive us for the wrong that we do. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? But I have to confess, the last two years has shown me how clearly, more clearly, how arrogant Harsh, impatient, and intolerant I am of those who disagree with me. And I hope that has shown, that these last two years has shown that to you too. But don't despair. That's the whole point of Jesus dying and rising again for you and me. Not because we're perfect, but because we are the opposite of these things. Our recognition of our lack of love, our lack of humility, our lack of gentleness, our lack of tolerance should drive us back to Jesus Christ. Because these are humanly impossible dispositions. Why then does Paul demand it of you and me? Well, precisely because it is God who is at work in us with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the Spirit is using that same power to work in you and me, to transform us into the image of Jesus so that these virtues need to be reflected more and more from day to day. And perhaps, call me crazy, Perhaps the very reason why we face these temptations is to expose our hearts and make us see that we need Jesus and drive us back to Christ so that we could act like these impossible people. And as we reflect the character of Jesus, we highlight the manifold wisdom of God that transforms us to reflect the character of our Savior. 
And please understand, these, developing these virtues is not optional. It's not for the super saint. It is for the ordinary believer. Because these virtues are key to preserving the unity of the spirit in verse 3. Developing these virtues is part of making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Paul is actually making a play on words here. He is a prisoner for the Lord. We are prisoners of peace, as it were. It's the same root word. A prisoner for the Lord calling us to preserve the unity of spirit in the bonds of peace. Our chains are beautiful chains, the chains of peace. And we don't create unity, but I think we're all experienced and experts in the disruption of unity. But understand this. Paul tells us to make every effort to preserve our unity because to disrupt the unity of the Spirit is to deny and disregard the sacrificial death of Jesus who died to bring peace. To put it baldly, this unity spits on the cross of Jesus. And I say that as somebody who has known the pain and disorientation of three church splits in 10 years. I was 16 years old when the first church split happened. And I was dismayed at the anger and lack of love displayed by people I admired as godly examples. We knew our theology and we hid our personal animosity with theological disputation. Now, it took 32 years before two of the people who were at the root of the conflict were reconciled. I thank the Lord I was there to see it happen. I had nothing to do with it. It was the spirit working in these two people who happened to be at a funeral. And I was with the kids of one of these people. And the three of us were rejoicing. Because for the first time in 32 years, these two people sat down and talked to each other amicably. Can you imagine? 32 years? I couldn't help but mourn those wasted years of two people who love the Lord not getting along, not being able to talk to each other because they hadn't settled matters rightly. Brethren, we cannot afford that kind of disunity, that kind of conflict. We are the new humanity in Jesus Christ. We are supposed to demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel by our loving unity. And that's why Paul, in verse 4 to verse 6, gives us a confession of seven ones. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one body. 
because each congregation is a local manifestation of that heavenly entity gathered around Christ. Friends, this is not an ordinary gathering. We are showing to the world what is happening in heaven. It's a leap into the eschaton, as David Barker would say. It is our privilege to demonstrate a heavenly reality. We are one body. And we share in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. The spirit who is the first deposit of our inheritance. And therein lies our one hope. We will be forever with the Lord together. Look around you. This is forever. And if that's a scary thought to you, you're going to have to ask, why is that so scary? And what does that reveal about my heart? See, our life together is practice for forever. We are in the bonds of peace. We're stuck together. Because we all submit to Jesus our Lord and trust in him alone. That's one Lord. One faith refers to the content of our belief. The good news that Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior. This is not a unity that is lowest, denom- lowest common denominator. This is a unity of truth, of ultimate truth. And we express that one faith in one baptism, which symbolizes our union with Christ. And because we are united with Christ, the one true living God is our Father. The emphasis is on the sovereignty of God over all. He is our Father. We are his adopted children. And in the Mediterranean culture of that day, family was everything. That was your closest tie. And Paul uses that imagery and brings that into the church and says, We are the forever family, bound not by DNA, but by common share in the blood of Jesus Christ, adopted as sons. Paul wants us to recognize that our unity is grounded in God's gracious act of salvation, uniting us to Christ and bringing us under his rule. And I thank the Lord that we have stayed reunited during this time. It validates the teaching and example of Steve West, of Stan Fowler, of Sam McCollum, and the elders. And I get it. We may not all be vaccinated. We may have differing opinions on the mandates and restrictions. We we may differ on a lot of things. But I'm glad that we understand 
that by the grace of God, we love each other despite our differences because we have something more important and more essential. The good news of Jesus was made peace on our behalf, and it is our privilege to demonstrate that same peace as a united congregation. Brethren, this is our witness and testimony in a divided and contentious world. The fact that we come together in worship, even when we don't agree about what's happening in Ottawa, is our witness. We embody shalom. And I know it's hard, but that's what we are called to do by the grace of God. And that indicates that gospel unity is not boring uniformity. God has chosen to demonstrate his infinite wisdom, not by bringing together people who like each other or who agree all the time, He actually brings together natural enemies, people from all cultures, races, walks of life, forming them into a new humanity so that we are a marvelous mosaic of unity in diversity. And it's not just that we come from different nations, language groups, age and socioeconomic backgrounds or political affiliations. Look at verse 7. Paul points out that we are diverse precisely because our Savior has made us diverse by giving us different gifts. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You wonder why you're so different from Sam. Because you're not Sam. (laughs) But that's how God designed it to be. It's that uniqueness that we bring to the table, that we bring to the congregation. I wish we were all like Sam. (laughs) Life would be much easier. But Christ himself has sovereignly, intentionally made us unique as an expression of his triumph by his death and resurrection. That is the emphasis of verse 8 and verse up to verse 10. It's a very difficult passage. First of all, because the citation of Psalm 68, verse 10, looks like Paul got it wrong. It's not, in, in Psalm 68, verse 10, if you read it, it's not he gave gifts to his people, he received gifts. And then, there's the other question of, what does it mean when it says, he ascended to the lower earthly regions, and rather than getting lost in the weeds, I am inclined to think that Paul was citing a Syriac variant of Psalm 68. Or the other option is that Paul is going forward to the ultimate result because in that day, a king would receive gifts from his subjects and those gifts would be given to other subjects. So that may be what Paul is doing. He's focusing on the end result. And in referring to the Christ descending to the lower regions, I think 
he is referring to the incarnation of Christ. That's probably the best way to understand it, but, you know, that's not a reason for division. (laughs) The emphasis of Paul is this. Our individual uniqueness bears witness to the triumph of Jesus and demonstrates the fact that Christ is the victorious King and Lord. Let's focus on that. But our God reigns and rules. And then he says something very surprising. He goes on to say that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are Christ's gift to the church. Now, this does not mean the elders get special treatment or are better than anyone. Paul is emphasizing the foundational role of God's word. You will notice apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, or probably better translated, pastor-teachers, are all focused on the ministry of God's word. What he's saying is that it is our role to give you God's word so that you would be shaped by God's word that you may be fit to serve. It's not so that we could indulge in theological dispute. Sometimes that's necessary. But notice what Paul says. Why do we have these ministries? Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built Our role as elders is to give you God's word so that you would be fit, equipped to serve both here in the church and wherever God has put you so that the body grows to maturity. We can imagine ourselves as a choir learning to sing a complicated piece of music together each of us having a part to master, but also each of us learning to blend our voices with our fellow singers. The goal is not so much a hundred voices singing the same piece or the same thing, the same part, but rather to harmonize a hundred diverse voices or 135, 140, whatever, to harmonize our diverse voices and parts into one rich sound. Imagine the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus being accompanied by the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. It's marvelous and magnificent. It's very difficult to accomplish, but its beauty is worth the effort and sacrifice. And that is the beauty Paul envisions for the church. It's the beauty you and I need to work towards until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, verse 13. See, God's agenda in all this is for all his people to mature. 
no children left behind. And please understand, maturity does not happen in isolation. We are bound together to complete each other. We need one another. And Paul defines maturity as attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is to say, becoming like Jesus in every way. And it's an ongoing project. It's something that we attain as we know Jesus more and more out of a deepening relationship with him. Because remember, knowledge isn't just awareness of facts. Adam knew Eve, they had Cain. That implies a bit more intimacy. It's intimacy and experience in relationship enabled by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean the truth is irrelevant. On the contrary, growth is grounded in truth. That's why Paul says, till we all come to the unity of the faith, a common understanding of truth, a common practice of truth. And then verse 14, Paul gives another category for maturity. It's not simply the knowledge of Christ in intimate experience and relationship. It is also being stable enough to discern truth from falsehood. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We need to be so anchored in the truth that we're able to see through the cunning half-truths and heresies people devise to deceive us. And friends, it goes beyond being so knowledgeable and analytical that you could poke holes in any argument. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14, turn with me there please, tells us that there's more to it than memorization or disputation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. He says, But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. See, discernment is the result of having our desires aligned to the standards of God from practicing the truth. We develop a sixth sense for deviations from truth the way a chef can tell if an ingredient is off simply by the feel of it while he's chopping it. Or a conductor, a choir conductor, can sense without necessarily hearing who it is, although some conductors are able to do that, when someone's off pitch or off rhythm and they stop and say, wait, wait, Stop, and everybody's like, whoa, I don't hear anything. Conductor knows. And again, that's been a challenge these days, hasn't it? Our unruly hearts are being revealed because we embrace positions that resonate with our disordered desires and soothe our fears during these chaotic times. 
and our susceptibility to half-truths and conspiracy theories online exposes our continuing need for growth. And those of us who are clear-headed and good thinkers also are not off the hook because our scornful and angry responses to what we do not agree with, whether online or in person, exposes our own lack of love, doesn't it? We're all works in progress. Paul's alternative is in verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Speaking the truth in love is both a fruit of maturity and a means for fostering maturity. And the best way I could think of speaking the truth in love is to challenge you to read Matthew 22 and 23 when you get home. Our Lord Jesus Christ modeled what it means to speak the truth in love. In chapter 22, he proclaimed the truth while evading the traps that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes were setting for him. And then in chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees for their hypocrisy. And my heart just reads that and says, yeah, Jesus, take him down. But then I read the end of chapter 23. And I realize that my heart isn't aligned with Jesus' heart. Because Jesus ends by lament. And you realize that Jesus was not trying to demean the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. He was exposing their sin in order to call them to repentance. See, that's speaking the truth in love. You tell the truth, caring for the people to whom you're speaking. You want what's best for them. You want them to know this wonderful Savior. And it goes a little further than that. Klein Snodgrass says that the Semitic concept of truth focuses on that on which one can rely. It is primarily a relational term of, for covenant loyalty and is sometimes translated by faithfulness. A truthful person is one who lives out his or her covenant obligations, which includes both what is said and what is done. Therefore, both truth and love bind us to the other person. For we cannot live truth and violate covenant relations. In other words, we speak the truth in love out of a relational care to do what is right, to demonstrate what is good and lovely, to help one another to greater faithfulness to our Savior. The end goal is for us to live together as a covenant community united by the gospel, seeking one another's welfare by speaking and acting with biblical integrity. We'll say more about that next week. 
But please understand, that covenant commitment to giving ourselves to seeking the welfare of our brethren is what causes the body to grow. And that body metaphor is meant to highlight the need for united participation. It is not God's intention that you be consumers sitting in the pews or lounging by the live stream. We grow by giving ourselves to the body. Verse 7 is critical. Each one of us, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That means each one of us has a role to play in the church's growth. And God has sovereignly put each one of us in the church to fulfill a specific purpose. That's part of the reason why we ask you to consider membership so that we can involve you as fully as possible in the life of the church because we value you as God's gift to the church. We need each other. And we build ourselves up in love as each part does its work. So you can imagine a body that is crippled, limping along because somebody isn't there to do the part that God wrote for him. We need one another. And we build ourselves up in love because ultimately maturity is to be measured by our love for each other, which expresses itself in harmonious relationships. So here's, what it, here's the bottom line for us. The true depth of our theology is measured by the strength of our commitment to each other. Ray Ortland points out, our relationships with one another reveal to us what we really believe as opposed to what we think we believe, our convictions as opposed to our opinions. It is possible for the gospel to remain at the shallow level of opinion, even sincere opinion, without penetrating to the deeper level of conviction. But when the gospel grips us down in our convictions, we embrace its implications wholeheartedly. Therefore, when we mistreat one another, our problem is not a lack of surface niceness, but a lack of gospel depth. What we need is not only better manners, but far more true faith. Remember what the disciples said to Jesus when he told them, forgive 70 times 7 in one day? Jesus, increase our faith. And really, that's what we need, isn't it? Because we look at each other, we look at the people we disagree with here in the auditorium, and we can't say that we really love them. Maybe tolerate with disdain. But that isn't what, what Paul is calling us to, is it? We bear with one another in love, with genuine affection. Not because this person has changed his mind, 
and agreed with us. But because this person is loved by Jesus, and therefore I will love him by the grace that God gives. And that's how we grow. Because we know more fully our need for Christ. And as we exercise our love muscles to care for that person whose opinions just make us make our brain, put our brains on fire, we learn the reality of Christ's Sovereign, unconditional, persevering love. And we can aspire for that same love, and for that harmony to which we are called. Because God's awesome power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. Notice what Paul says. From him, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We are not on our own. This is not a project that we are to do on our own strength. Christ is our victorious head who guides us and provides everything we need, who is in fact living in us, renovating our hearts, so that we would be able to serve the body and contribute to its growth. And yes, we have a long way to go. But our hope and confidence is that this same Christ who dwells in our hearts by faith lavishes his incomparable love on us every moment because he's remaking us into a people fit for the king. He is making us a people worthy of our calling, the inheritance of the sovereign Lord of the universe. So let us respond to his work. First of all, in humble repentance, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner who doesn't love the way you have loved me. And as we know the love of Christ that reassures us that even when we have not lived up to our calling, he has not stopped loving us. And he's not going to abandon us. That love grips us so that we would be able to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again. And that manifests itself in unconditional love and acceptance of the very people whom he has given us to love, despite how unlovely they may be to our eyes. Let us pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know the many times that we have looked down on people for daring to disagree with us. You know the many times that we have acted not in gentleness but in harshness 
because we want to intimidate, unconsciously, we want to intimidate people into agreeing with us. You know how impatient we have been with people, with our children, because they don't get it. Father, forgive our arrogance. Forgive us for thinking that we are, for putting ourselves in your place. Forgive us for failing to recognize that in your sovereignty, you have made us all different. And that you have shaped us in different ways so that we each may be a means of shaping the people that you've put into our lives, so that we shape others and they shape us, as iron sharpens iron. Oh Lord, may that sharpening be lubricated by the love of the Spirit, so that we may not rust in enmity and disdain for each other, but that as a church in the coming days, the people who come into our midst would say how they love each other and then say, truly God is in their midst so that we may truly glorify you by demonstrating the transforming power of the gospel. And we know that this is your intention for us. Help us then cooperate with your work, to humble ourselves, to be open to your Spirit's work so that we may reflect as a church a glorious vision of that new humanity, praising God together, singing glory to the Lamb. This we ask in Christ's name and for his marvelous name. Amen.